Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're excited to have Drew Wilson from Cyclocarbon on the show with us today. Drew, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, the name Cyclocarbon kind of says a lot. It's uh, carbon bicycle repair. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about what you do at Cyclocarbon? Sure. We primarily make carbon fiber repairs for customers, um, both direct and from bike shops, but people send us in frames that they've crashed um, or even probably more often damaged in shipping, transportation, on bike racks, things like that. And uh, we make minor repairs and touch the paint up and uh, get them back on the road. We also do custom paint. Um, sometimes it's a good time when you've already started working on a bike to sort of completely resurrect it and feels like a brand new bike then. Yeah. And how long have you been uh, doing that? How long have you been working under the cyclocarbon umbrella? Cyclocarbon has existed since about 2011, 2012. I'm not sure when we came up with the, with the name. Uh, I've been doing it full time now for almost six years. Wow, and at this at this point, we have a couple of employees as well, so it's uh it's it's grown rapidly at twenty twenty five percent growth every year. That's amazing. How did you get started? When I was in college, I spent at least as much time working in my garage on cars as I did on getting my biology degree <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it grew out of that. Uh, similar, similar work to what I to what I taught myself, I guess, when I was uh, when I was in college. I taught myself how to work with fiberglass, some carbon fiber. Uh, we were doing carbon fiber um, and probably more fiberglass, but making body kits for cars, doing some metal work on cars. Just I got I got passionate about modifying cars. I went to Arizona State for for a year and then came back to Minneapolis. I went to the U of M and. Uh, Spent a lot of my time doing that. Uh, I guess the, the economy crashed in 2008 or so, and I was, uh, I was a 25-year-old guy, and I, I used to be a downhill ski racer, and I felt like I was overweight, didn't know what to do. I had a job at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I got into bikes, and uh, when I broke a bike, I said, I can fix that because I sort of had no developed kidding. those skills. So in a lot of ways, it's the same thing I've been doing since 2001. It's just on a completely different you know, almost different medium with bikes instead of cars. So what kinds of repair work do you do on, on bikes? I mean, what, what are some of the kinds of repair or breakages that do you see? We can fix almost anything. The question becomes whether or not it is cost-effective to repair things. The most common repairs are people damaging stays, uh, tipping mm -hmm. mountain bikes over into rocks or their bars <laughs> spin and hit the top tube, uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We don't work on forks. Just they're not expensive enough, you know, and the, the liability. Uh, we don't, we didn't get that with our insurance, so we didn't try to. So mm -hmm. and you, but almost you anything else repair. can be done. You do some yes. wheel repair too, right? Yes, we do repair wheels. Uh, Generally, tubulars are more repairable than clinchers. We don't really work on the braking surface. But mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, nipples will pull through the spoke, through the carbon, and we can easily reinforce that. 
Um, and on disc wheels, we can we can do more work than we could on others. Wheels are wheels are harder to define what is doable and what isn't doable from a you know without looking at a particular picture or a sure. individual individual wheel. But, and and how do how does a, a repair on a wheel differ from a frame repair? I mean, what what from a process perspective, what's what's different about those things? Well, Anything? it's the structural structural demands are different uh, with every repair. Uh, you know, the frame repairs depending on where they're located on the frame, it can be quite a bit different what you're actually trying to do structurally. The, the biggest difference between a wheel and a frame repair is on a frame, we're expecting it to be as good as new from a structural and cosmetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, essentially starting over again from new. And on a wheel, uh, they're a little bit more disposable, and we're trying to keep the cost down generally on wheel repairs mm-hmm. from, a, from a cosmetic standpoint. Sure. Yep. So you're just trying to make the thing roll again. Yeah, and hopefully break if that's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, unless you're on the track, you generally need to have a, a way to slow down the bike using the wheel, right? <laughs> yeah. For sure. So what uh, what's the most common repair job that you have to work on on a bike? Is there is there a most frequent one? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the particular manufacturers who keep messing up the exact same things. <laughs> um, you know, too much, but the most common things otherwise would be the bar spin hitting the top tube. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is, which, which happens in a crash. Uh, sure. Also stays being impacted from the side in a crash or even by a foot. Like sometimes people, sometimes just their foot will slip hmm. and put their heel through the frame. Hey, wow. And that, you know, and that, well, and that can happen in a crash or, uh, you know, in a in a hard impact near crash, sometimes people don't go down. But I've I've had sure. customers on mountain bikes in particular who uh, get stuck in a rock garden or something and backpedal mm-hmm. while they're oh. half clipped out, half falling over, and they manage to break mm-hmm. a stay. So, hmm. and and so uh, as you reflect back on the early days of the of the company what were some of the the hurdles that you had to overcome well we had to figure out how to do this um i was i was lucky i'm very lucky to have uh i've worked with express composites which is a company out of st paul that supplies hobbyists and i guess small manufacturers like airplane parts boats everything you know with 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 composite stuff and they've, they've been in business for a long time and they're great um when I was 19 and I walked in there and I wanted to do some fiberglass work, they sort of just told me, you know, Hey, this is what you need. Go figure it out. And, uh, you know, over the years, that's how I've learned to do everything. So I don't have any, I don't have any actual education other than a little bit of guidance from them. And then a lot of experimentation. Hmm. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, actually my, my first repair turned out great though um you know we, we had enough information or experience where i was able to repair my own look and uh i raced that many years in crits after it was repaired wow so you obviously and, and, uh you know as they say eat your own dog food right yes oh yeah we have uh i don't i don't own too many friends that aren't repaired wow so 
And so explain, without giving away your trade secrets, can you explain the process that you go through to repair uh, a broken frame? Yeah. We don't use any, like, advanced imaging techniques or anything like that. Some of my competitors do. Um, you know, they've invested heavily into being able to determine exactly the extent of damage. Uh, I don't have any of that. I'm looking at it uh, and inspecting it, you know, by hand and by eye and using my experience. We, we've, we've repaired around 2,000 frames at this point, and they really don't. I, I don't think I'm missing things. I'm almost certain I'm not missing things. Things don't come back that they always oh, broken over here that you didn't see. Mm-hmm. But that's the first step is really determining what needs to happen. And then, you know, referencing or having an idea structurally what that means and how that area, uh, you know, loads while you use the bike. Mm-hmm. But, but the actual process is, is to sand the area. We remove layers um, and we try to leave, uh, you know, I, with most with most minor damage, we can leave the structure or the shape of the frame intact. Hmm. Sand it down some, add a layer of carbon. Um, you know, put pressure on it, vacuum on it, and then do a little bit of finish work at the end and paint it, and you end up with a seamless repair. Wow! So it's it's a it's tapered. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so we the sand the sanding basically removes damaged you know plies of the carbon. And sure. then lets us gives us space to make a tapered repair, so you're not noticing it. Mm-hmm. And so, is is one layer of carbon enough to seal a hole or to re- recreate the structure? One layer. I, there's different weights of material that you can use. Okay. Um, you know, so like, so the, that's a little bit of a tricky question. You know, because you can have uh, the like the weave of the fiber changes. Um, okay. So one layer could be could it's more like the mass of the material that you're adding, but with 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 the weight of material that I use, uh, most repairs have between three and seven layers. Hmm. And so it's it's a fascinating science to me. Are you are you laying each individual layer down and and securing it essentially or fusing it to the frame and then? laying down the next one or are you making a big patch with all of those layers and laying it all on at once? I'm laying it all on at once, but one at a time. Uh, and then or orienting the, the fibers the way that I want to layer on top of the previous layer. Wow. That's fascinating. It's, it, I mean, it seems like there's a ton of uh, expertise, obviously, that you've, you've gained over the years. But it also seems like there's a little bit of an art to to what you do. I I think so. Yes, it's not. Uh, there's no completely right or wrong answer because every every single project's a little bit different. Yeah, I'm sure. For sure. So, so you're 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 looking at it and and making an interpretation, and we're adding a additional safety factor over what we think that interpretation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in order to essentially make it strong, well, for sure, make it stronger than it was sure. originally. Yep. And I suspect your insurance company is happy about that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what should people expect if they come to you uh, for help with their bike? I mean, what what's the process like for for your cl- your clients? Sure. We take uh, well, all my stuff goes to one inbox and we just we reply we what we need is we need to see pictures 
and uh, at that point determine. I can almost always determine the cost from a picture, and you know, and and the extent, just because I've seen so many of them. You know, and, and every time we get something, I look at the picture and eventually I sand it. And so I have, I, you know, I'm just kind of programmed to know what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that point, we, you know, we have someone to quote. We've got uh, typically three to five days with a frame for a typical repair, um, including touch-up time. And, wow. uh, you know, they pay when they're done and we send it back. When I first started, you know, I've... I'm a bike racer and I really wanted to be able to do it where, you know, someone could crash on Saturday and get the bike back the next week. But our company yeah. has become so national. That's not as, you know, it's not applicable to somebody who's in California, sure. but we, right. we get a lot of things shipped here, but you know, within the, within the twin twin cities, Madison, Iowa city area using speedy delivery, you know, if somebody wants to race the next weekend, we can get that done. Uh, typically. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so, so what do people need to know or to be able to tell you in addition to the picture uh, what, about the, the issue before you or when they ask you for help, I should say? Yeah, really just the picture. And then it helps a lot because I, we're going to ask how much they want to recreate it from a cosmetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. So there are. Yeah. You can easily get into cosmetic things that are as expensive or as intensive as the repair. Sure. You know, without, without question. Because, yeah. well, bike paint is actually, is I think bike paint is getting better recently. A lot of the manufacturers seem to have really invested into, you know, having better design, more colors, doing just cooler things. And, you know, we know what a lot of the paints that people are using is are using R, uh, but it's not simple just to match uh, four different colors and blend it all together. Yeah. Is is it fair to say that the paint part is the most challenging aspect of a project for you? Typically, yes. Uh, so when absolutely. you when you reflect on a on a successful project, a successful repair, you know, obviously getting it to the point where it's rideable and functional having it be, you know, having the client be co- uh, confident in the bike is important. But what what do you think is the key to a successful repair job? It's probably listening to the client because some people don't care at all about the cosmetics and they, and they want it, you know, it's, it's a ma- matching what is actually done with what they want to pay for mm-hmm. is uh, is actually probably the biggest challenge as well as what, what really makes it work, uh, you know, cause not people all want something else, something different. Sure. Yep. Yep. And, and so what would you say is the most rewarding part of the job for you? Well, just things aren't going in the garbage for sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, yep. the, you know, and I'm, I, I ride a lot of frames or a lot of bikes that aren't just carbon bikes. Sometimes people think that, Oh, you know, your carbon repair, that's all, you know, like, all you care about is carbon fiber, you know, whatever. But, um, I, there's so many great bikes that have already been built and whether it is carbon or or steel frames that we could refinish for someone or whatever, um, you know, I, I feel strongly that we should, uh, essentially recycle those. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, certainly, you know, as you think about, you know, bikes that have some heritage, um, early yeah. bikes, I saw you just posted a, uh, a Marin mountain bike from 1996. Yeah, you know, yeah. projects like that, I'm sure, are really rewarding. Yeah, for sure. Um, personally, I'm, I have several older bikes, and I'm, I'm passionate about older steel bikes, and especially Italian ones, Marins, and uh, Landsharks, hmm. myself. So. Fun, fun stuff. <laughs> You uh, you've, you've done some pretty creative paint jobs as well. How how did the the sort of wild and wacky paint jobs evolve from the business? Well, we had to learn how to paint, or I had to learn how to paint well enough to do the touch ups, which is probably even harder than most paint jobs to do a good job of. And it sort of grew out of that. And there's a ton of demand for paint. Um, you know, it really couldn't be ignored. You know, I started out doing, I started out doing pretty basic paint jobs. People were asking for it and, um, it's, you know, just, just even paying attention to what people want, you end up doing more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And that's been, it's been a fun process. It, at first it was probably something that I did, uh, you know, to sort of stay sane and have a little creativity and have fun and <laughs> there's still some of that, but also now we're doing a lot of paint jobs that are a little bit more, uh, I wouldn't say cookie cutter, but a little bit like we've done so many that they're straightforward for us now. Yeah. So it's, you know, so it feels more like work sometimes, but you know, <laughs> you're going to have some things that are work. Yeah. It's, it's not all fun in riding bikes, right? Right. Doing the, doing the most creative paint jobs is, you know, it's just fun as well and and so so do people come to you now specifically for a wild paint job yeah yeah we we paint a new bike probably every every other week brand new frames wow we do two to four paint jobs a week this time of year wow um so probably one probably one or two would be ones that had a minor repair and they wanted to use that opportunity to sort of refresh the whole bike and make it their own. And maybe one's a brand new frame and one's just somebody's four or five year old bike that they wanted to send in and, and have refreshed. Yeah. That's really fun. I mean, I love it. I mean, your, your Facebook feed is one of the most entertaining bike feeds out there just because of the wild colors and designs that you, uh, that you put out there for people. Sure. Thank you. Uh, what, uh, as you, as you look down the road, you know, you've been doing this for six years full time and you've grown, you know, you said earlier 25% a year, basically what's, what's your vision for the company long-term? Long-term, we are currently a little on the fence about how much we're going to expand. Uh, there's, uh, there's, we would be investing in essentially commercial real estate in, in Rochester, which is kind of booming as far as the housing market and the real estate market goes. And we're not sure we want to do that. Um, and I'm also long-term planning on moving to the Keweenaw. I, I spend uh, about a quarter of my time in Calumet, Michigan. And uh, long-term, we're going to move up there. And when we move up there, we'll be able to get uh, you know a larger commercial space much cheaper. Mm-hmm. but that's a 10 or 15 year plan before we're going to be up there full time. So mm-hmm. in the meantime, uh, we, we may kind of be 
stuck at the generally the size we are now. So our gains are going to have to come from at least our gains as far as volume goes will have to come from mm-hmm. becoming more efficient. Sure. Yeah. So what what does that look like? What what does efficiency mean for you? Just better use of your space so you can do more projects at once. What's the what does that feel like to you? Yeah, that and just being better at them and not making mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, when or, you know, uh, the, if you lay the paint on perfectly, you don't have to go back a step. Sure. That kind of thing. For sure. Yep. And you can do more repairs, uh, you know, with skill. For sure. Mm-hmm. You've uh you've done some pretty amazing bikes uh over over the years. Uh you uh you created one that kinda had a viral moment of its own. Can you talk a little bit about that fat time trial Franken bike that you built? <laughs> uh yeah, that was uh that was an interesting project. Uh I was <laughs> It, 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 it uh, struck a nerve with people because it was both functional enough that they couldn't just ignore it and also just something that everyone was going to have. It, it was going to elicit strong responses. It was a time trial bike that we modified um, to fit fat bike tires. And I wouldn't have done it if I didn't know the rider fairly well and that he truly yeah. intended to ride it. And he, I mean, he time trials on that thing for fun and does events like Rig Bry and the ride across Wisconsin. And wow. he pulls big groups of people around over 20 miles an hour on that thing. You're um, kidding. And, and truly, truly uses it. I mean, the, the ride across Wisconsin is a, uh, you know, it's not a bike race. It's a grand fondo, but, you know, he's over there on that thing well over 100 miles into the day riding with Jens Voigt, uh, you know, and wow. pulling people around. So, oh, my gosh. So that, you know, uh, it's, I think if everyone, some of the controversy, if people actually realized the guy was out there doing that, they would have, they would shut up some of the controversy. But the controversy is <laughs> also, the controversy is also what, what made it. Um, you know, and it's not a, it's not a project that I've repeated, you know, and it's not necessarily a bike that I would want, but it was, it was awful fun to do. And let me use a lot of my, uh, car modification experience and, uh, you know, as far as the design went and trying to take the parameters of what we had and make it look cool. We kind of did like a little mini fender and some things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was it was a lot of fun to do, and and the reaction was a lot of fun too, and and you know, and the owner has a great sense of humor about it as well, which helps. So yeah, and, and people so either love it or they hate it. Right. What was the genesis of the idea? I mean, what did the shampoo bottle hit him in the head in the shower one morning and said, "I know what I need." <laughs> well, you know, some people are very passionate about fat bikes. Yep. You know, he's, he's, he's one of those guys anyways, and he's a, he, he's a time trialer, but he, you know, he owns fat bikes and he broke his, well, the time trial bike that we ended up modifying broke and he was at going to the Iowa games or some other time trial and he rode his fat bike. And I think he, you know, he spent, he probably spent his, you know, I don't know how long he would have been taken on a regular fat bike, you know, probably did a 40 K time trial. So he got to spend about an hour thinking about, Hey, this is kind of fun. 
what if I had an Aerofap bike, you know, that made more sense for this? <laughs> you know, probably, I mean, probably get it, you know, if you, you get out there in a, in a, in an official time trial on a fat bike and everyone's cheering for you. Sure. So, you know, I can see how he kind of got the idea going at that point. Yeah. Like, Hey, this, you know, this could be really fun. <laughs> as long as I, as long as I don't mind all the attention it'll bring. Right. Right. The, uh, you know, the one, one thing that, that, uh, obviously has to change is the, the width of the bottom bracket. Yeah. On a fat bike, you know, so you compare a skinny tire bike and a fat bike and obviously you have to get the pedals out wider than the, the rear tire. How did you modify the frame uh, from his skinny tire time trial bike to accommodate? That was entirely cut out. Oh, really? So, yeah. So we we cut it out and we added a titanium bottom bracket shell from uh, yeah from Paragon. Well, and titanium it doesn't have uh, the same corrosion issues or you know if you put aluminum near the carbon there could be galvanic corrosion yeah. uh, so we we used titanium and redid the entire uh rear end of the frame from there and and rob knew um when he when he contacted us about this project one of the other things was he knew i'd already made a similar project i had made a cannondale fat bike a couple of years before for myself mm-hmm. and i had used the same bottom bracket shell and and bent the state Bent the stays is probably the wrong thing to the wrong thing to yeah. say because you can't bend carbon. But I had right. I had shaped the stays uh, and created you know and created a rear end that worked for a fat bike on that one as well. So that I think that probably that also probably triggered his hey I know somebody who can do this so let's do it right. That's fantastic. But, well, speaking of titanium, you uh, you all recently did a uh, a project for me. And uh, I couldn't be happier with the with the results on my uh, titanium carbon colnago frame. Can you talk a little bit about that project and what you had to do to bring it back to life? Sure. Yeah. Those. Well, all of the quote unquote B stay colnagos. Uh, they. I've seen several with this with the same damage or the same issue where the aluminum dropout begins to corrode or in, in the case of yours, it was pretty corroded, um, you know, and, and, and will eventually detach itself from the rest of the bike from the, from the carbon stays. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the best answer, um, oh, there's, there's a few ways we, we could approach that. We could use a, a carbon dropout. We could use a titanium dropout. Um, but either way we're going to have, the only way to move forward would be to remove that badly corroded aluminum and replace it. So in your case, I was able to just, I have, I have a parts bin or a box full of old frames and I was able to find one with similar angles and use the parts that were needed from that frame. And that keeps the cost down a lot. Some of my competitors will actually, um, make dropouts in that situation but mm-hmm. they charge about a thousand dollars for just the one side dropout at that point yeah. mm-hmm. so yeah. you, you know using a donor piece makes more sense and it, you know and it sort of fits with our with our recycling as well but yeah uh the the donor piece i used on your frame was uh from a i think it's from a 2014 or 2015 candle 
Mm-hmm. And uh, how far up the stays did you have to cut to make sure you had a good fit with the new parts? Yeah. So as the further you go up the stays, the more the frames have to be a perfect match or I have to do more work in order to make the angles match. But mm-hmm. I like to, I, in this, so with this sort of repair, I like to cut about three inches, three between three and four inches away from the dropout, so I have room to work. Sure. So and about so three inches on yours. Did you have to do a lot of extra shaping on those stays to uh, make the angles work right and fit the parts together? Yes. <laughs> the answer. <laughs> the answer to that is yes. <laughs> And so uh, then obviously you had to paint it. You know, the Colnagos uh, are known, especially from that era, for, are known for a pretty detailed and intricate paint job. Uh, talk a little bit about how you matched the new back end to the existing paint job. <laughs> well, we, uh, we bought a new airbrush and started, uh, started playing with it. Wow. But, you know, getting the getting the colors right. Um, basically, we got the colors right. Like rough, we roughed in the colors using my normal smaller paint gun. Mm-hmm. So where there was black, it was black, and where there was white, there was white, and it had sort of rough transitions and wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And then we actually clear coated it and then scuffed the clear coat. So that hmm. airbrush work could be done over the top of that, but that scuff clear coat, I can, I was able to then erase the airbrushing if it didn't go well. That's interesting. So, yeah. So using using that method, uh, basically, it's just having the patience to you know get it right, uh, as yeah. opposed to you know it would be very hard just to nail it right away. Um, I have sure. I have no idea who who has the skill to actually do that paint job, the entire thing, as well as they did them from the factory. Yeah. One, of, one of my good friends was an airbrush artist who used to go to uh, all the motorcycle shows and paint uh, oh, yeah. at the, you know, like in the parking lot at the show. Uh, really? And Yeah, and he, he probably could have done it, but it's, uh, <laughs> that's highly skilled, and that was his career for 30 years, too. So Wow. I'm still I'm still uh, learning to I'm still learning that from an airbrushing perspective. Well, it's so. uh, you know you you would have to have seen the original bike and looked at it really closely to see where the changes were made. I mean the the, the work that you did is just is stunning, and I couldn't be happier with it honestly. Great, well, thank you. Yeah. Have you uh, have you had some other particularly fun projects that you've built or restored over the years? Uh, for sure. Yeah. We, uh, it kind of depends on which direction you're looking at them. If you're looking at things that are my own, but, uh, my, if I have a 19, I think it's an 89 land shark. Mm -hmm. So, so very, very, uh, similar to the, uh, to the Huffy that, uh, you know, famously won in the snowstorm and, uh, we, were, we got that, and the top tube had been replaced by a builder out east, and I picked that frame up for about $200 and uh, was able to – I changed one of the colors. Uh, Slada, the, the builder, had originally painted it with a silver to gray fade, 
and then splatter yeah. paint. Uh, and I was able, I changed the, I changed the gray to pink, <laughs> which is, which is a big change, but I figured, Hey, if I'm repainting this big, you know, and there's no rules because every frame that he right. painted was wild and different. And that was one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons I really like his frames because for me, it's fun to be able to paint stuff. And, sure. you know, if I pick up, a, you know, if I got a 1986, uh, Pinarello or, Trek or whatever brand anybody, you know, knows what they're supposed to look like, you know, the high-end ones, that's how it's supposed to look. And right. if I have a land shark that, you know, is arguably as good as a bike or whatever, but there's no rules about how it's supposed to look, so I can treat it as right. a little bit of a blank slate. But that was very fulfilling because we were able to match the style of the splatter paint really well and, you know, just end up with something that was really neat that I just, that I'll keep forever. So that's, that's really fun. Do you, uh, do you have a pretty sizable fleet of your own bikes? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I will, uh, I had a few concussions, um, actually three years and three and a half years ago now, but it's kind of hurt. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't been bike racing as much, but I will still, I mean, mostly I haven't been racing road since that. Um, I used to race a lot of crits, but I will, I've, I've been in fat bike races. I'll be in fat bike, uh, gravel, um, cyclocross races this year, mountain bike races for sure. So, you know, I have race bikes for all of those disciplines. And then, um, I have a lot of other bicycles, but the, the ones I'm most, the ones that I seem to collect the most of are ones where, uh, you know, they fit between 32 and 35 millimeter tires and work well on road or gravel, um, just mm-hmm. for the kind of riding that I like to do. Sure. So that's most, most of my collection or road bikes. Um, I bought a Cervelo RCA this year, uh, mm-hmm. badly damaged. I paid $400 for my RCA frame, which is, a wow. they're $10,000 10, frames. Yeah. Uh, made in California. Um, and so I have that built up that actually is hanging on the wall beside me right now. The two bikes that, the two bikes that hang, the two bikes that hang on my wall in my bedroom. And they're also the two first two bikes that would go out the door if it was summer are the, uh, RCA and the RCA is built with uh one by with campy, um, 11, um, you know, it's, and it's like high 11s pound, you know, 11 pound range. Uh, and then a 1972 Legnano, uh, Roma Olympiad. Wow. And that one, that one is built, is not, not built as this one left the factory. It's not original. My dad raced on Legnanos in that time period. Um, Hmm. and he had a, well, my dad rides a 51 and I ride a 57. So he had a 51 that I have, uh, that I also have the frame uh, on display, but he had a 51 and I took all the parts off of his bike and built this 57 with his parts. And it has some of the earliest, uh, Phil Wood hubs and Phil Wood bottom bracket on it with the, you know, and then the rest of the build is Nova record. No kidding. But, but those are my two, I mean, those are the two coolest bikes, I suppose, that I have or that most people yeah. would, you know. I, 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 really like, I, I really like my 96 Marin. That was my first bike as well. But Yeah. 
What's the what's the the, the go to bike? I mean, when you're just going to go out for a ride, what's the what's the go to bike, or do you do you swap about based on the color of your jersey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I try to ride. I ride everything I own, so I, I try hard to you know ride all the different road bikes, even though I have you know a bunch. But but the bike I ride the most is actually a Titus FCR, which is just full custom racer. I think it was somebody's custom ordered uh, titanium Titus cross bike. Um, and I bought it uh, from a friend in Brownsville, Texas, four years ago or so. And I had blue steel bikes out of lacrosse, build me a different fork for it. Actually, I rode it about 2,000 miles first. And then we designed the fork and uh, set it up for touring, you know, so it, it has lights mm-hmm. and bags and everything on it. And that's the bike I ride the most. Mm-hmm. It's not, not, not my fastest gravel racing bike and not. Sure. Uh, you know, it's not vintage. It's just it just kind of is, and it you know it rides great, and it's set up to use for anything. Is is gravel kind of your main go to ride if you want to go out on a? Well, I live on a I, I live on a gravel road. Right. Uh, so you don't have much choice. <laughs> <laughs> but I have I have no issue with you know say riding the RCA down my gravel road on tubulars to get the two miles to pavement either. Mm-hmm. I I ride all. I'm not worried. About, I, I'm not worried about riding any of my bikes on gravel. That's so great. most of most of our rides in, down here, especially in the summer, once once the roads get dried out, you know, and uh, packed down, you can ride a road bike on gravel. And so I ride a mixture. That's great. You uh, you obviously are very familiar with gravel. Uh, in fact, you put on a few gravel events. Yes. One of which is coming up here uh, fairly soon. The Dickey Scramble is the beginning of April. It is. We we moved it earlier, so it's soon this yeah. year. So what uh, what's the history of that that race? What's uh, how, how did you decide that that was a good idea? Uh, well, the first time I ever rode a hundred miles was in I believe the second Almanzo. So the first one that started in Rochester, and I saw an ad. I had, like I mentioned earlier, I sort of wasn't sure what to do with myself in Rochester. I had this job down here at Mayo, and I, you know, I, I had been a downhill ski racer, and that's not something that you do in Rochester, Minnesota. <laughs> so I, I wasn't sure. I was kind of looking for a. I was looking for a sport that, you know, where adults compete, right? You know, yeah. I like competition, and so I wanted something that I could do and. You know, I, I had already, before I saw that event, I'd already done a mountain bike race the fall before and sort of started, you know, riding more. I'd always, I'd always ridden bikes, and I knew my dad had raced bikes, but I hadn't get really gotten into it ever. But I saw that event in just the local paper, and I, I think I sent Chris an email, and it said, hey, I, and this was like the week before. I said, hey, I think I can ride 100 miles. Can I be in the event? And he, like, replied, Sure. Um, and actually rode, I rode, I rode my Marin 1996 Marin mountain bike, uh, you know, hundred miles. I think, I think it took me eight hours, which is probably wow. pretty good. Cause I hadn't ridden that far before or anything like that. But yeah. and I, I, I really rode as hard as I could, um, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> for sure. It was very windy as well. I, I remember that I went home and took a nap for like four hours. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a it was a good time, but uh, you know uh, Chris and I were friends, and uh, our friends, and uh, had a little bit of involvement with helping with that. 
and wanted to continue to uh you know grow that aspect of cycling mm-hmm. and so we started the Dickie scramble and i think this is the sixth or seventh year sixth year hmm. wow so i'm i'm not i'm not even sure and it's a little bit confusing cuz the first couple of years i'm not counting because we did it differently but we've been out in Elgin now we've been through three different owners of the bar which uh, it's like the bar it used to be the wow. VFW has a real has a really great place to hang out afterwards in the back. But we've been through three different owners of that place, and they're still happy to have us, and we're still doing the same, more or less the same event every year. So that's great. And how did you how did you identify the route? How did you figure out the the path for the ride? Well, I uh, I used to ride a lot. <laughs> Uh, a lot of miles on gravel, so I I, I know almost. I I've said before to you know to, to to some people I think I've ridden every road between um, Austin and uh, Austin and uh, probably the Michigan border going in that direction. Wow. So um, and then not so much north of uh, Stillwater area in on the Minnesota side, but on the Wisconsin side, all of that, all the way down to Madison. I've just I've made so many trips through all of that stuff, and you know, long trips out of you know, lots of you know, uh, eighty to one hundred and fifty mile rides out of Rochester. So I I think I know all the roads, and sometimes you uh, you know you just. To, well, for me, anyways, I'm riding along, and I say, hey, this would be a place that would be really cool if there was a route that was here. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much where it came from was, hey, this is a spot that would work, as well as that I thought that the bar venue would work. Um, there's an event mm-hmm. called Theorem. Uh, if you're familiar with Theorem, that's down in Des Moines, mm-hmm. actually in Cumming, Iowa. And I've always really liked that event, and they use a somewhat similar bar. Uh, they don't have food at that bar, which we do we do in Elgin. But they, uh, I felt like that was something. Hey, if I'm going to put on a gravel event, it would be good if we had a venue like that because it works so well. Way too many gravel events don't collect the riders at the end. Mm. You know, uh, in order to create community and and that kind of thing, it's nice to sit down with everybody. So. Sure. That's that's important to me that people that people sit down and that they ideally are also uh, sit down and are sitting down with the local community. When we when we go you know if we go to Elgin, we're not trying to put on a bike race and be separate and then leave. You know mm-hmm. we're trying to we're you know because I want the local people to to see that these cyclists are the same people that they are and maybe get inspired to ride themselves. Yeah. So, so we all we all end up hanging out in a bar together. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, how have they responded? Have they been have they been excited to have the ride every year? Uh, Elgin, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's not much open in Elgin, <laughs> other than the uh, <laughs> other than the place that I mean, you know, on Sundays. Sure. Which is when yep. we've historically done it, but yeah, um, yeah, ever everyone's always welcomed us there. People. If, if you approach these, the trick is, is, you know, to identify places that can be mutually beneficial to put on these events, you know? And so if you're picking a, if you're picking a, a, a destination or a venue 
and you're going to them and saying, hey, this is what we want to do. This is how it's going to fit together with what you're doing and how we're basically going to bring in some business to your city and we want to be beneficial, you know, that's, that works out really well. And part of that is the distance from, you know, the major metro area because, sure. it's, you know, it's almost impossible to make that same pitch to Burnsville. Yeah. You bring in you a know. couple hundred people to Elgin, it makes a big difference, right? Yeah. And, and you're not disrupting another 20,000 people. Right. <laughs> yep. So, yep. you know, that's, and that's part of it. For sure. What, uh, what makes the Dickey Scramble different from other gravel rides? I mean, what do you think are some of the standout elements of the ride? Uh, both the route. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm passionate about the roads. And I'm not putting on a gravel event and saying, hey, this is, this is on gravel. It's good because it's on gravel. I'm putting it on because, mm-hmm. you know, or it's the roads that I think are very good. And there's actually, you know, there's care put into that and, and making sure mm-hmm. that they're good and that they, they fit together. Um, and if you want to race, it creates, the, the course is, is designed for there to be a bike race. There's opportunities mm-hmm. to get ahead. There's opportunities to um, catch back up. It's going to be hard to hold your. It's going to be hard if you just get ahead on the hill to stay ahead all the way to the finish on the bigger hill. Yeah, on the, the bigger hills, which are you know located mm-hmm. twenty five thirty miles from the finish typically. And uh, there's there's some good rollers and stuff coming in, but it's you know we're able to do that, and I believe that setting it up that way makes it fun for people who want to race and doesn't do anything at all you know to hurt someone else who just wants to come out and have fun. Their experience, they yeah. don't care. They're just doing their sure. own thing behind that. We also the probably the biggest thing that sets it apart though is pileup checkpoint. That's so such a we, great idea. Talk talk about <laughs> what that means. We collect it. We collect food at the start and put it out on a table under a tent at the halfway point or roughly the halfway point. And it's basically we just tell people to bring something that they'd want to eat, uh, which means anything from beer and cigars to uh vegan bars <laughs> sorry and, is, and way cater tot hot dish, right <laughs> uh sometimes it, um, that's probably been there and <laughs> and way more way more way more of any of it than than anybody would ever need as well um you know so if you're not racing we've got this great place to to hang out you know um at the halfway fantastic so, uh, so can or, people still register for the for the Dickey Scramble? We, uh, you can register at, um, I don't know what time that one starts for sure. Uh, you can register until about fifteen minutes before we start. Wow. I want I want to say we bumped the start up to nine thirty or nine this year though. Yeah. We're trying to be done before a fireman's banquet. So. Ah. <laughs> but all that information is available on the Facebook page. Okay. There's an event Facebook page. Facebook page. Yep. Uh, well, we promote the events under um, under not under Cyclocarbon, but under Keep Gravel Weird. But if you search if you search for Dicky Scramble 2020, you'll get to the yep. you get to that page for the event. We'll uh, we'll be sure to share the uh, the links to that uh, via the show Facebook page, so that yeah folks can see it if they haven't already. Yeah, so we'll yeah, I mean anyone can anyone can show up. Yes, that's great. Well, we're also we're also doing the Spring Valley 100, which is 100 miles out of Spring Valley. Um, 
at this point loosely based on what the Almanzo used to be. Um, we've we've tweaked that as well. We're trying same goals. We're trying to tweak it so that it works with the community, um, you know, and is therefore sustainable and where we're able to collect people at the finish. But the city has volunteered and I mean totally on their own doing. They heard about us doing the event and they're throwing a party, and they're yeah. throwing a party that's not just for us. It's for their community. Um, they're going to have Fun. local bands and people hanging out in the park and. I changed the route so we finish in that park. So we should all, you know, I mean, the weather could be a disaster, but if the weather's nice, we'll be there cheering every rider on, and hopefully local people will be too. I would be, I'm excited about the potential for, for local people to be cheering on the later riders in particular, you know, and creating kind of a, I think that'll be a, a really cool thing if that can happen. Yeah. So it's uh that's a, it's an exciting thing. You know, we we relaunched the Minnesota Ironman bike ride last year and we did it in conjunction with a, a community festival in Shakopee and uh having live music when you come back from a 100-mile ride with food trucks and a beer is pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, and the other the other one that in the I I was I didn't do that event, so I don't know how the finish of this went. The other one that I've done that sort of inspired this is that finish for Dirty Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where where they they finished that downtown, and I was like, hey, we should mm-hmm. get, you know, get this situation where people you, you know feel really good about what they just did because they should, you know, especially the people who, yeah. you know, I mean, somebody who can ride a uh, hundred miles in five hours and twenty minutes. That's hard, but yeah. if you're out there for nine. If you're out there for nine hours, it's actually harder, I, you know, or eight hours or whatever. I've I, I've been there, um, you know, and so those people deserve to have somebody cheering for them. Everyone everyone deserves to have someone cheering for them, you know, no matter how they approach the event. So it's kind Absolutely. of, I mean, or you know, at least somebody there finished and know they finished <laughs> and talk to them. That's right. You know, and, and have a good time. So yeah, and so what's the date of the Spring Valley One Hundred? Ooh, uh, let me look. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not prepared. <laughs> it's a you know, gotcha question. I gotta have one gotcha for every one of my guests, right? Yeah. Well, it's the sixth. The sixth. So it's the it's the first Saturday of June. Okay. So it's June sixth of this year, mm-hmm. and so it's always the first Saturday. We basically we moved it back two weeks, but then we. Mm-hmm. From, from where the Almanzo used to be, because now there's the Haywood, which I'll be participating in as well, and that's something else I'm excited about. But, you know, we just wanted to create a new event, essentially, and that's where it ended up. So it's always going to be that first Saturday. That's great. And and so the Keep Gravel Weird uh, Facebook page will have details on that as well? Yeah, it has the links to both of those on it for sure. Great. So great. There's also there's an event page just called 2020 Spring Valley 100. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And uh, in, as I understand it, you're putting on an event in Michigan too, right? I am the title sponsor. I don't I don't spend enough time in Michigan. I'm about 20 percent up there. I don't spend enough time up there to put on the event. But my friends, uh, the Red Jacket Cycling Club, are putting on the Keweenaw Chain Drive which is a great uh, point-to-point mountain bike race that I participated in years ago when I was first getting into cycling, and it went away, and they decided to bring it back last year. And so we, I guess partly because of my previous experience with it and having fun, we decided that we would uh, help support them. 
So that one is about two weeks after that. I'll find out when that one is too. Great. Well, we'll be sure to put the links to all these events on the uh, on the show social media so that people can uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I would love to see people up there. I, I that's my favorite place in the world is that area. So it seems like there's a lot of great riding up there. There's a lot of underrated riding up there too. Everybody knows about Copper Harbor, mm-hmm. but not enough people are riding around on the uh, on the gravel and paved roads. There's uh, there's amazing uh, road riding in that area. So that one is June twentieth and twenty first, by the way. And that is okay. Great. Yeah. So there's, uh, with all of these great destinations around here for you to ride, do you have a bucket list ride destination? I mean, are there places that you want to go that you haven't been able to explore yet? Uh, yes, I would like to do a couple of things. I would like to ride to the Atlantic probably via Canada. Hmm. Um, I've been looking at that and trying to figure out, you know, like how I'd want to do that. Um, maybe meet my family, uh, in Maine, which actually adds a lot, mm. you know, cause you, you, that Maine's out there quite a ways extra, mm-hmm. but we, we think it would be fun to go there. But the bigger one currently that is more likely would be trying to go to Hudson Bay which would be the similar start to it, but there's, you know, as far as the first half or even first third of that route. But I think there's a way to go to Thunder Bay. I found an article um, written by some guys on motorcycles who rode up there. And uh, there's basically one road. uh, And it sounds desolate and possibly not that interesting, but I kind of like that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we did a we did a tour a couple of years ago where I invited friends and uh, a couple of us went up there and we went to a place called Misery Bay, which is just in northern <laughs> Michigan. Um, you know, and it was just it's just a bay with mosquitoes. Um, you know, and you know it's not about the destination, but it, it, you know it is about the destination. You got to have a destination that that you want to get to. Sure, but. It's about the it's about the journey. Otherwise, yeah. and the logistical challenges of getting to Hudson Bay, um, pretty compelling, I guess. Yeah, I mean, at some point you start to run out of places to buy gas station sandwiches, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. On that trip, um, I you know the guys at the motorcycles didn't so much have that issue. They did spend. I think they camped one night. Um, I think I think it was about a 300-mile road, the last 300 miles, where you're basically unsupported and there's just, there's like phones every five miles or something like that in case there's an emergency, so you can call the uh, mounted police, I guess. And, uh, wow. you, you know, that's that's about it. And then at the end, there's, a, there's some kind of, a, I think it's a power, like electrical uh, station up there, you know, and uh, so there's stuff up there when you get there. Um, but from at least from there, from what I read, and, and you know, I could do more research, but I don't really want to. I kind of want it to be an adventure when we do this. Um, <laughs> but I think there's about three restaurants up there when you get to the end. Don't uh, don't polar bears live up there? Yes. 
They do. <laughs> that that, well, that is like part it. of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've been chased by a dog or two on a gravel ride, but that's that's a, another level. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I hope you see more of the phones along the road than you do polar bears. Let's let's say it that way. <laughs> yeah, well, they you know they may not bother you, but yeah. Wow. Well, that's I'm not like, I'm not uh, sure I'm not sure when that will happen. I've been uh, I've been looking at that for a little while, and uh, I think I have a couple friends who are actually interested in doing it. So it, it you know it could be planned. Um, could be planned in the next uh, year, year and a half, I think. That sounds like a really good uh, good bucket list item for sure. <laughs> not not one I really want to do by myself either. We're trying to get. No, no I'd like to get two or three people. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Drew, this has just been a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed uh, learning more about cyclocarbon and all the events and the riding that you're doing. And, uh, again, I can't thank you enough for all the beautiful work you did on, on my bike. And uh, really great having you here on the show today. Thank you.